James, or continuing to work our way through the book of James uh, in chapter 1. Uh, I have read, and you may agree, that James is structured a lot like the Proverbs. In fact, some people have sort of compared it to the Proverbs. Uh, I have read and some uh, see a parallel uh, to the Beatitudes, and so, so James is sort of unfolding it in a, in a, beat, a beatific way. Uh, I, I, can see the, I can see the proverb relationship because um, it does seem sometimes like he shifts from one subject to, it, to another. It's like a, an elongated proverb. Uh, but the particular passage we're looking at tonight, beginning in verse, uh, we'll, we'll back up to verse 12, but primarily in verse 13 and following, uh, seems to me not to be uh, disconnected from what he's already established in regards to trials and the counting it all joy and everything that I've shared. In fact, I think the natural progression uh, of the trials and even the way he's unfolding what he has to say about that uh, leads, it's almost as if he's anticipating rhetorical or questions, so he, he kind of answers those rhetorically without, uh, without saying it. Uh, so he goes uh, from the first part when he talks about joy, uh, then he goes to verse 5, anticipating <clears throat> your recognition of a lack of understanding and wisdom in, in how to have joy in the midst of trials. So he immediately speaks to that. You need God's wisdom. So if any of you lack wisdom, uh, then he works his way through that and, and, and anticipating uh, this idea of wisdom and the asking for that wisdom. And he speaks to him about faith in regards to faith, asking in faith. Um, Commenting on that as well, verse 9, speaking of the brother of humble circumstances and the rich man, uh, really both to glory uh, in the fact one in his humiliation and one in his humble state. Um, I think the reason being is because in that, in that state for both the rich man and the, and the man of a humble, humble estate, uh, he is closest to understanding what dependence upon God looks like. Um, and then in verse 12, he kind of caps that, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And, and to me, it seems as though in verse 13, uh, I, would, I would think or would suggest anyway that he still has in mind this idea of trials, how the Christian navigates through that, what real and genuine and authentic faith looks like in the midst of those things. And he seems to anticipate that if, okay, if I concede now that my trial and the difficulties I'm encountering are providentially uh, brought to me by the hand of God for the refining of my faith and for my endurance, then, then can I conclude, therefore, that God is, is tempting me? Because in the midst of these trials, temptations arise. So am I to attribute now my temptation to God? And so he uh, seems, seems to me to be at least answering that possibility. It could, even if you want to take it as just a, a, a disconnected proverb, it still has its application. So we'll read those texts together tonight. In verse 13, after he says, uh, verse 12, as I've already read, But let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is, uh, notice, the, notice the progression here, no, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it, give birth, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Uh, 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Uh, now, you could say he's shifting now to another subject, but I think that's his follow-up or his commentary on what he's just brought, brought, brought to their attention. So in verse 13, uh, I think he is anticipating there a wrong conclusion that they might draw in the midst of trials. I wrote this in my notes, having established that various trials encountered come to us by providence and for our sanctification, one might surmise in that condition that the temptation that come upon us in their midst are likewise from God. Temptations might be those options or actions that we entertain in the midst of a trial, which we believe or hope would eliminate or mitigate the trial and its accompanying suffering. So, so when the trial comes, certainly the Lord is providential in permitting and allowing the trials to come into our life. And, and I think James is answering the concern that in the midst of those trials, there are temptations that arise. And, and so you might say, well, if God has ordained this trial and, and, and what I'm going through now for the sanctification, then the temptations that arise in the trial should be attributed to him as well. And I think that's what James is concerned with answering. So he gives two decisive truths in regards to the temptations that they were enduring perhaps in the trial or that we endure in general. In verse 13, he says there, blessed, or verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. So that's the first, uh, his first exhortation. Then he says, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So the first truth I'm seeing there is that he's laying down against that presumption that might arise in, in us during our trials is that God, uh, God cannot be tempted by, by, by evil. He cannot, he's untemptable, so one translation says. God is perfect in all his attributes, perfect in his righteousness, holiness, love, mercy, and all the attributes of God. I wrote it this way. There is no vulnerability in God corresponding to evil, no imperfections to be exploited by evil. One translator I read said that you could translate that as, as literally that God is untemptable. There is, no, there is no tempting God. So God cannot be tempted by evil. And this was what was interesting, that God would bring trials upon us by his providence with the express intent that we should succumb to the temptations that accompany them would be contradictory to the very express purpose for them that James has given. In other words, therefore, our sanctification. If, if the temptation, if God is tempting, if God himself is tempting us, with, with sin in the midst of the trial in which he says, James says, he has sent into our lives to purify and to refine faith, then he is working against his own stated purpose in the trial. And I think that's what James must be thinking. It would essentially, for God to do that, would essentially make the trial at the same moment to be for the refining of our faith and for its abandonment. It would be in the same moment a call to growth, to, to genuine faith and the destruction of it. So you see the contradiction that James is addressing here. If you say in your trial that God is tempting me, 
uh, to evil, then you are suggesting that God is tempted by evil because he's, get, he's doing two different things. He's bringing the trial to refine my faith, but yet he's tempting me so that I might fail in my faith, that I might, that I might abandon my faith. And that would, I think, essentially be to attribute confusion and disorder in the mind and the purposes of God in the trial. So I think that's why James is at least one of the reasons why James is keen to point out that in your trials and the temptations that arise from those, you need not, you ought not to look to God and say, God is tempting me because God is not tempted by evil. So James says in response to that thinking, that potential thinking that God is untemptable to such an evil as that. So then, is there no temptation in trial? That's what I was asking myself. Do, so I, should we conclude from what James says is that trials um, come by God's providence for the sanctifying of our, our lives, our refining of our faith, and there really is no real temptation in there because God is in control and God is certainly not tempting me. So do I conclude, therefore, that trials do not include temptation? The answer, obviously, is no. Also, in 1 Corinthians, in fact, uh, 10, 13, it indicates that there is indeed something as, as, as real as a tri- uh, temptations in a trial. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, is there a tempter? So is there a real tempter? Because he's going to go on to talk about how we're, how we're tempted, but is there a tempter? If God is not the tempter, is there a tempter that is involved in the temptations that come to us in our trials? Is there, is there something... Is there someone tempting us in the midst of our trials? And, and I think, again, the obvious answer to that is, is yes. In fact, I mentioned 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 calls the devil himself the tempter. So there is a tempter. It is not God. God is superintending and providential and sovereign over the trials and what he permits into our lives. He's even sovereign in his allowing of the tempter to do his thing. But God, God cannot be tempted by evil. And in the second part, the truth that James lays down is that God himself tempts no one. There is a tempter. He is Satan. There is temptation that arises in the midst of trials. And the tempter in that moment is Satan. It is not God himself. Yes, he is operating under the sovereign hand of God and through his temptations may, may serve ultimately the purposes of God for refining your faith. But, the, but God is not the tempter and neither does he tempt personally himself any man. So I think that's helpful that in our trials we keep those things straight. I don't know what you're going through specifically right now or what trial you may going through, be going through at this moment. But in that trial, I can assure you of two things that he lays down here. Number one, God himself is not tempting you. And number two, that God is not capable or not able to be tempted by evil. So those two things are true. So you can set those down as solid and then begin to evaluate the trial and the temptation and what all's going on in that moment. You can exclude those two possibilities involved. It is not God who is tempting you. So he goes on to say, he does, he does as I said, however, permit the tempter at times and exercises a providence over the trial. So how, how we fall to the tempter, that's the question I'm asking tonight. And you see that in verses 14 through 15. Be careful and read what he says here. Let me back up to 13 and read it 
as it flows. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But, so here's how, here's how we fall. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when his lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth to death. So the tempter in that situation, I think, is Satan. We're in the trial, we're in the troubles and, and difficulties of life, and we have, a, we have a vulnerability. I think our lust is rooted in desires. Originally, they were God-given and part of the imagio Dei in us, but in the fall, they've all been distorted, and we seek to fulfill sometimes those original right desires in wrongful and sinful ways. Well, that's, who he's, that's who's involved in the trial. That's you and I. That's, that's where we live. That's, that we have these, we might start out with a genuine desire, God-given desire, but in our fallenness, we, ex, we exercise that desire in wrongful ways, and it devolves into what is essentially lust. So, so there is, a, there is a, a condition in us that makes us prime for the tempter. That's why he comes to us. That's why he comes to the garden. Originally, he comes to the garden as the tempter. I think even in Christ's own life, the temptations of Christ. So he comes as the tempter, and the circumstances are the trial. And in the midst of the trial, the lust or the desires in our heart, warped as they are by sin, producing us a lust. And it may be in the trial for a number of things, maybe immediately comfort. There may be a natural given desire to, to live and to preserve life, but in the fall, it, it's, it's exercised wrongly. It, it sacrifices important things for, for comfort and for life and for ease and all those other things. So the tempter is there. Here we are in the midst of the trial, vulnerable as it were to the temptations that he will provide for us. The promise to, to do this or to act in this way and you can relieve the comforting. So the temptation arises out of the trial by the tempter and he targets and he, the tempter has access as it were to us through our fallen desires which manifest themselves in lust. I shared this with the kids but I turned this around for them and, and, and built it in a different way. In other words, I started out with death Sin, concept, lust conceived, enticement, carrying away, and all the way back to the root thing in us that makes us vulnerable to fall to temptation is lust. And that's the way he constructs it. In verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. Uh, verse, uh, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So I understand that to mean the thing at the bottom there is the lust. And, and the way you fall to temptation is that the lust itself begins, changes from just the desire to being carried away by the desire. It's almost as if the lust is present, the desire is present, it's distorted in sin, but it is a, it is a desire. But then the desire becomes so desirable that we, we lose control, we lose our faculties of reason, and now the desire itself is carrying us along. 
And to me, there's a, there's a change there in responsibility. I'm standing here now outside of a trial, and I recognize that there are desires in my heart, and some of those are good, and they're original, and they're, they're God-given, but they are also distorted in ways by sin. But in, outside of this trial, I can evaluate that according to the truth, and I'm in control. I choose to yield to this desire or exercise this di- desire as God has ordained. And I choose to reject to act upon it in this way because God has demonstrated that to do so would be sinful. So you see the difference there? I'm thinking through this. I'm taking the word. I'm applying it. I'm putting to death the old man. I'm encouraging the new man. I'm, I'm, I'm actively thinking through this desire and evaluating how I should act upon this desire. Well, when trials come and pain is in place and discomfort is sought... Then, then we begin to lose that faculty. We become more desperate to escape and to find some comfort or some peace in the midst of all of that. And all of a sudden, somewhere it shifts over. We're no longer evaluating the desire. The desire itself scoops us up, as it were, passively and carries us along towards the thing that, that we, we lust for. And to me, that's a, that's a big transition. To me, that ought to be a warning in the Christian's life at all times, but particularly in times of trial, because whenever difficulties come, we are... We are, more, we are more inclined to become reactionary and instinctively seek out a place of comfort or security or some sort of bring something to ourselves that will provide something for us in that moment. And when we think that way, we can catch our, we can find ourselves being caught up and carried along by the lust of our hearts, by the desires distorted though they may be. So now control has been shifted from me, my reason, my thinking, and to the desire itself. Now my lust is driving me and carrying me along. The imagery there is striking to me because the implication is I'm not walking with it. I'm not taking it into hand and, and walking along in a partnership with it. The lust now has taken control. I'm no longer thinking rightly. I'm being carried along by something, unaware in some ways of the fact, maybe even thinking that I'm thinking my way through this, but I'm really being carried along by this lust that is buried within the fallen man and in the fallen man's heart. I'm no longer in control as would be the way I would say it. Uh, Now the lust is in control. Now the lust is carrying me. And as he carries me along, the second part of that is he's carried along and then enticed. Now he's carrying me along and then he presents something out there that in my mind would solve the thing that I'm wanting. It would bring the relief that I'm desiring. It would accommodate what what the lust is desiring in that moment. And that's the enticement. He's carrying me along. My lust now has taken control. I'm not reasoning and thinking this is right or this is wrong. I'm just being carried along knowing that there's a hunger for something. And whenever that's at its peak, that's when the thing offers itself that in my mind and my thinking in that moment would be the remedy for what I'm looking for. It would be the fulfillment of what I'm looking for. Now, I have been carried along. I'm no more reasoning according to truth and according to reality. I'm being carried along by this drive and this lust. 
And then the tempter presents the thing that is going to entice me according to the lust. The lust is there. The desire is there. Let's put this in the place of that thing. Now I'm enticed. Now I'm enticed. Now there's a lure. Now there's an object that promises to, my, to satisfy the lust of the heart. In the case of the trials, if that's the context that James means here, it might be a way offered me to accommodate the current situation or to, to get me out of that or to minimize or reduce the suffering involved in this trial. The thing that promises to bring some relief. You can make application in other areas as well. But now, not only are we being carried along and been driving along by this desire, maybe even undefined in our own hearts, now we have an object. Now I know what it is that will feel the desire. And that's a very dangerous place now. Because beforehand, we're being carried along and we have this undefined, maybe unnamed desire carrying us along and we're unawares. And that's a dangerous place to be. But then it carries you far enough and suddenly there's an object that promises that it will satisfy that desire. Now you've got two problems. Now you're being carried along as an unreasoning brute by instinct alone. And now you've targeted what you think will desire, satisfy that desire. Going back to his earlier phrase, God's not doing that. God is not doing that. The tempter is bringing, bringing the thing to your attention that would fool you into thinking it would satisfy you. But what's driving you along in the temptation is your own sinful lust in that moment. It's not God tempting you. There is a tempter. And there is a vulnerability in the tempted, and that is our fallen, fleshly, carnal nature. And that's what's happening here. It's being carried along. Now it has an object. I was sharing with someone recently, uh, just ministering to someone with a drug addiction for a number of years and, and the frustration of that. And, and, and I remember saying to that person, look, if you get the urge... If you, if you get the desire to do that drug, no matter the time of day, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, call me. I will come immediately and I will sit with you until that craving passes. And he was honest enough to tell me that once that urge strikes me, once that object has been identified for me, there is no way I'm calling you. Because you would be the one thing that would keep me from... I'm taking to myself the thing that has drawn me, carried away, and enticed me. I am enticed now by my instincts to satisfy this craving for drugs. And there is no way I'm going to let anything keep me from getting there. That's, how, that's why it's a dangerous place to be carried along unwittingly and unreasonably by our lust. And then to finally, in that lust, identify an object that we believe will satisfy that lust. That's a dangerous place to be. And I think that's what James is saying to us. And he describes the danger of it as well. He is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So when that lust... This carrying along, he's identified the object. Finally, he takes to himself the object. I think that's what he means, that it gives, uh, that it is conceived. Now I've identified it. I want it. I will stop at nothing to receive it. Then he says, that gives birth. When that's conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now you've sinned. 
Now you've sinned. Now, now the temptation, the trial, all those have conspired. You have, they have stirred up your lust to find comfort outside of truth and outside of the Spirit of God. And you've identified the object that you think that can bring you. And now you've set yourself to take to yourself that very thing. That's conception and that is sin. Now, I don't think it would have been sin to recognize that my lust here is desiring something wrong, but I will not yield to the lust of my heart. I will turn to the truth of God. I will exercise faith. I will trust in God to sustain me in the midst of this trial, that I will trust Him in this temptation to provide the way for me to escape it. I don't think that's sinful. I think it's sinful when we yield to that and we set out now to receive the thing to ourselves. If anything, the temptation should have revealed the, the problem in us. And that could be yielded and turned over to Christ and Christ could work in our heart to address the issue of our lust in that moment. But we're not like that in this passage. We're being carried along by it. It's the guiding factor. It's the decisive activity taking us towards the thing we're desiring. And, and we identify it. Satan puts it out there and we believe the lie and we say that can satisfy the deepest need of my heart in this moment. I'm setting myself now to, to receive to myself that thing that I have identified. That's sin. And then finally in verse 5, the progression here, and when that sin is accomplished... It brings forth death. We know that it does in an ultimate sense, but I think in a, in a categorical, uh, in a specific sense, it, that's the end of what it produces here. I was in a trial. I was struggling. I was yearning for comfort in the midst of that trial, and I became so occupied with finding my place of comfort that I began to be carried along with this overwhelming, unreasonable desire to find comfort in any place, and the tempter set this thing out in front of me, and, and I bought into the lie in that moment and set myself to pursue and to take that thing to myself, and as I did that, it manifested itself in my sinfulness, and the end of that sinfulness was that I died in some way spiritually in that moment I didn't gain the comfort that I was seeking for I put myself to death in the pursuit of that outside of God like I said I think the death he's referring to here long term is the death uh, the eternal death of sin having conceived and not turned away from and living our entire lives based on the power and the strength of the flesh and following the flesh's lust that will ultimately end in death when that sin is accomplished when it's finished it will result in death there is that broader and wider meaning here to me that passage is, has been helpful but very sobering as well because in some ways, I can't even say the devil made me do it. The devil, the deceiver, uh, the, the tempter, the, the liar from the beginning, he has lots of experience in exploiting the sinful hearts of men. In fact, uh, that passage I cited earlier says, There's no temptation taken you but that which is common to man. Every man is temptable. Because we have that fallen nature. We have these instincts and desires, perhaps good in their origin, but distorted by sin. And we seek to manifest or satisfy those in ungodly and unordained and, un and sinful ways. So we all have that vulnerability. And when the trial comes, 
We can be acting upon that and being carried along by that. And Satan just simply offers the thing that promises comfort in that moment. And because we're so desperate and because we're unfaithful and because we're relying upon the strength of our flesh, we believe the lie and we set out to receive that thing to ourselves, only to find that it did not satisfy the soul's yearning. It only produced in us death. I think that's important to remember in temptation as well. In fact, it ought to make me frightened of my own desires in the midst of trials. It it makes me want to evaluate, what do I want here? What is my greatest desire here? This is a trial. Obviously, no one wants to hurt and suffer pain. And obviously, I don't want pain. But what do I want more than that? What value do I put upon my relationship with God and my intimacy with Him and my dependency upon Him? Is it of higher value? Is it worthy to suffer the the effects of this trial? Or would I seek a lesser comfort in this moment, a more temporal comfort? Will I abandon faith in God and the promise of joy in Him for the momentary comfort of some relief in the midst of this trial? That's what it compels me to think about when trials come, especially when trials come. I think that would be a good way to be thinking in terms of everyday life because there are those little trials. I mentioned one Sunday morning, a mower breaking down and a water pump on a trunk is not a major trial. It's a minor frustration, but that's where we learn to practice it. I said, I said Sunday morning that I experienced a mysterious sense of calm and all that. I didn't get upset or anxious or frightened or, or angry in any way. I just said it is what it is. I'll, I'll, I'll make the adjustments I need to make to go through this. It's not the end of the world. Well, I could have said, I've got things to do. <laughs> I've got things to do. I, I could have started presenting options in my mind of how to make this easier because I don't like this mess. I could have done that, but I think this is a good practice to do when there are small trials so that when the big trials come, like the diagnosis or the broken family or the rebellious children or grandchildren, when all those things come to bear and we're, we're looking in that moment for a way to just escape it all and to find some peace somewhere and we're not, we don't want to endure it anymore, we're exhausted That's when I think we're particularly in danger of being in that moment carried away by this desire to find a place of relief and looking away from God to that, for that, and being made vulnerable to what Satan would offer us in its place. And you and I know very well that what he offers is always a lie. The Bible says sin brings pleasure for a season, but the end thereof is death. Has he ever offered you anything that you have received that didn't turn out to be a lie? Everything he's ever offered me and promised me that would make me happier in the end made me more miserable. And as those piled up through the years in my fallen, dark understanding ignorance, I became even more miserable. And the end thereof was death. He was killing me all along the way, promising me that I could live if I would only accept it from His hand. And in a fallen state and apart from the grace and mercy of God, I was buying every lie. And I'd say this, so were you when you were outside of Christ. You were were finding satisfaction for needs that you couldn't even identify. You were fulfilling uh, 
accepting his lies as, as potential solutions to your inward misery, as it were. And this is exactly what I think James is speaking to in this temptation. I think personally in the context of their trials, but you can expand it farther than that to trials in general. I love what he says in verse 16. Because I think this is directly, directly related to what the tempter offers you in the midst of those trials as the remedy for what you're desiring. Because he says there, do not be deceived. First and foremost, you're being lied to. The thing that is promising to bring you relief that is not from God is a lie. You are being deceived. If you're being carried along and you've identified that and you've bought into the possibility that it will bring you relief, you have been deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't buy that, beloved brethren. And then he says this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of a desire to eliminate or ease the suffering of a trial, what you want most are those two things. Good things. Gifts from heaven. Not from anywhere else. Those other things that Satan is offering you is a deception. They are not from the Father. They are from this world. They are from the tempter. The good things and the perfect things, they come down from the Father. He is not offering you the good things and the perfect things, no matter how it looks, because they don't come from Him. He's incapable of bringing those things to you. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Why would, why would we believe the lie that out of that He can bring forth good and perfect things to eliminate our suffering in the midst of trials? It's nothing but deception. It's nothing but hard-heartedness that would cause us to buy into that. And James says, brethren, do not be deceived. The good and the perfect gifts that, that eliminate or that minister to the suffering in the midst of trials and contribute to the refining of faith, these things come down from the Father of lights. And lest you think He changed from that trial to this trial, He goes on to say, with whom there is no variation. He is always the source of those things. Not just in this trial, but in tomorrow's trial and the severe one down the road and the ultimate one that takes you right up to the door of death. The good and the perfect that is needed in that moment for sanctification and for true comfort comes from the Father and from Him alone. Satan doesn't have the solution. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get sick of him offering. Don't you? I mean, you've learned over time in your Christian life to you can identify what he throws out there and it, it just almost makes you mad. It almost says, why do you want to intensify my pain in this moment? I'm seeking after God. I'm trying to find my relief in God. And oh, you know the old man and you throw out the thing the old man might used to have found comfort in. I see your deception here, Satan, and you make me sick. And here's the thing about him. While he's doing that, he's working on another angle. He's got you occupied with what, he, what you've identified as wrong, and he's working at another angle. So you always have to beware. You always have to beware and to be seeking the gifts that come down from the Father. I, I, I say this with trembling and I think humility, but 
In suffering, I would rather have the comfort that comes from God in the inner man and to succumb to the suffering than I would to have Satan's lies and temporary comfort and succumb eternally. That's no trade-off. It's no trade-off at all. I mean, Paul, even, even considering the suffering is of this life, says, cause these things, but minor. <laughs> he seems to be viewing them as minor inconveniences when compared to the glory that will reveal, be revealed in us. Paul's value system was elsewhere. And so the suffering was understood and received as such under the gracious hand of God. And he allowed the work of sanctification to happen through his suffering. He did not choose the options put before him by, by the tempter. And he was not, he did not, this is important, he did not yield over his reasoning to the, to the tempter and to his own lust in that moment. He refused to be carried along by instinct. He preferred rather to be carried along by the Spirit and to be compelled by truth. Finally, in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, you could probably preach a sermon on this, but in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits among his creatures. There's a larger, larger application, obviously, to that, but I wonder in verse 18 if he doesn't in, indicate here, even in the trials, it is by the exercise of his will that he brought us forth from the trial by the word of truth. That is our deliverance. As I said Sunday, I worry sometimes that I'm, not, that I'm not learning the lesson of the trial and thereby prolonging it. I occupy a lot of my time thinking about that. Lord, let me, let me get the lesson quickly because I don't, I don't like the pain. And I just as soon as it be eliminated as soon as possible, and if that's contingent upon me yielding to what you're showing me in this moment, Lord, give me a sensitive heart and a sensitive mind and a sensitive understanding to grasp what it is that you are saying to me or showing me in regards to your sufficiency and my own insufficiency. Lord, let me learn the lesson quickly. James says later on, be slow to speak and quick to hear. I think that has something to do with that as well. So my closing or closing thought surrounds this idea of temptation. If I could just say personally to everybody, there are challenges and difficulties, I think, in all of our lives. Some, some small and minor, relatively speaking, some massive. But in all of those there is a vulnerability in us that needs to be accounted for, and that is that we are not yet glorified. We are, we are being sanctified, but there is still that remnant of an old man needing to be put to death every day. And that old man, especially in the midst of trials and trying circumstances, he, he finds his greatest strength sometimes in those. And that's when he begins to take over and the instinct goes. And my encouragement to myself and to all of us as Christians, especially in those difficult times, know that there is that vulnerability in us. And in that moment as well, know that there is a tempter who, even though restrained by the gracious hand of our God, does his work. Jesus, we just spoke, spoke on it recently. 
Jesus told Peter, Satan, the tempter, has desired to sift you, essentially to tempt you. And Jesus doesn't say, I forbid him to do that. He says, I have prayed for you. The implication being that permission was granted. The tempter was coming. And what he, what he exposed in Peter, I think, ultimately was the lust of his flesh, the desires of the old man, preservation of life. He, he offered to him options. You can deny him here or you can confess him openly by faith and risk your own life. What are you going to do, Peter? And Peter, being carried along by the old man, yielded three times, which Jesus had foretold. The tempter's real, the vulnerability's real, but here's my encouragement. So is the grace of God. So is the grace of God. So is the mercy of God. Uh, to me, that's where we turn in those moments to where we ri feel rising up in us a desire to escape the trial. When we feel rising us up in us an identifying of something that might bring relief in this trial. When we feel that and see that rising up in our hearts in that moment to say that in the end produces death. I want life. So, Lord, I will yield here under your sovereign, weighty, disciplinary hand and let you accomplish in me what you will. Because I know that that lends itself towards my fullness of joy and my eternal comfort. That's the decisions in front of all of us tomorrow. As that little trial hits you or that big one hits you and all these things unfold in your life, that's the option before you. And I think James is, this is why I think James is saying this in the context of the trials that they were going through. In fact, you, may, you might make the argument everything he unfolds in the books is, is said to them in the context of the things they were dealing with every day. Yes, they are proverb-like, but they have real application. These are real issues that they would face. He goes on to talk about all sorts of things, favoritism and, 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 and interrelations with one another, the tongue. He goes on to talk about a lot of things that would be prone to be misused in the midst of trying times. And so it may be that the entire book is in the context of the sufferings we endure daily as Christians in a in an increasingly hostile world to our faith. So thank you for your attention. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I do thank you for grace, for mercy in the midst of trials. Lord, we've all gone through those. And, and Father, probably I would say most of us have in the midst of those trials found our way out an easy way somewhere, only to realize later that it didn't solve anything. In fact, we had, after that, we had the guilt of, of resisting you in those moments. So, Father, I just pray that through these words of yours, through the Spirit, that we might learn to identify that the, that the real root of our temptation is our own fallen nature, and that the one who would most exploit that is our adversary, the devil. But Lord, I do pray also that we would realize that there is grace. We are born again. James is speaking to brethren here. And Father, we have that ultimate security. And, and by your grace and by your strength, Father, in the midst of temptation and in trial, that you would grant that we might choose you and choose only the comfort that you bring in those moments. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Encourage them in their Christian life, their Christian walk, Father. Equip them to, to stand firm in the difficult days and, and also in the days to be 
the, the good days, Father, to be wary and to be alert, to not drop our guards in those moments as though, as though our tempter was taking a day off. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for the cross without Jesus and the cross, these things would not even be possible. We would all be sitting here this very moment deceived and having found some comfort in this world, which would soon end. So we thank you for that grace. Bless those again who've come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.